Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with the Oscar-nominated director and writer for Tar, Todd Field, and Dan Baer's interview with the Oscar-nominated cinematographer, Florian Hoffmeister. If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tar is many things. As a conductor, Tar began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she had last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013, Berlin elected Tar as its principal conductor, and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 EGOTs, meaning those who have won all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro. Thank you. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by emotion? Yes. Yes, it does happen. All right, Todd Field, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing great. Thank you so, so much. Um, I guess the natural question I have to ask at this stage of the game right now is you're no stranger to award season. All of your feature films have been nominated for Oscars, but Tar, you've been nominated for Best Director this time around. How does that feel, um, con- you know, just comparatively speaking, or do you just see it as, hey, I'm happy for all my films to get any recognition that they receive? Well, of course. I mean, it's you, you, you know, you lock arms with a lot of people. There are many hands that that make a motion picture, you know, um, and any recognition that that brings attention to to your collective efforts um, gets at least one more person to see the film is hugely rewarding. Although, you know, I won't lie, uh, being nominated for best director was definitely a milestone for me as a, you know, as a filmmaker and um, something I'm hugely excited about. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're very excited for you. All three of your films in the bedroom, uh, Little Children and now Tar um, have been favorites of mine and many, many others. So much so that uh, we hope that there's not so much of a substantial gap next time around between uh, Little Children and Tar, uh, hopefully with the next one, because I, I think that what you're 
doing as a storyteller is absolutely phenomenal. And to even get praise from revered filmmakers like Martin Scorsese at the New York Film Critics Circle uh, dinner, which I attended, um, I just imagine you, you must be feeling the love this year, I, I imagine, right? Yeah, people have been extremely uh, uh, generous um, with their support of, of the film, and and uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, of course. I mean, <laughs> are you kidding, Martin Scorsese? <laughs> are you kidding? I mean, that's like this is like dream stuff. You know, this is like kid stuff. You know, um, these are you know heroic uh, figures in your discipline, um, and um, for them to even notice what you're doing is a uh, is a gigantic. Uh, you know, um, dream come true, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it'll be a very interesting thing to go back to a quiet life of filmmaker desperation after this. You know? <laughs> now, one of the things that has received a considerable amount of praise has been your screenplay for tar. And I want to know what was the impetus? What was the spark that lit the match? Uh, was it the character? Was it, uh, this, feeling the about the, the yeah. character the character yeah. i mean I'm, a, I'm not a plotter i'm not a you know i'm not a i i'm a i'm i'm a people person you know um just to put it plainly you know i i uh, that's how i work so i if it's always about the character it's always about following the character and and uh trying to find you know some scaffolding for them to to climb on you know it's not a and there that's always first you know absolutely was lydia tar uh an agglomation of different people from your life or was she based on someone that you knew personally or read about anything like that well i mean hindsight is 2020 you know it's always dangerous to go back and i think excavate uh the work um i i think that whether you're writing fiction or you're writing um poetry or you're writing uh, stage plays or screenplays or operas or whatever, uh, you know, we're the sum of our parts. So um, I, I don't think that at least I, I've never run across any other writers that just sort of make up characters from whole cloth. You know, I think that you're contaminated uh, for good or for ill by your experiences. And so Lydia Tarr is, I'm sure, born out of those experiences. Now, what was your familiarity with the world that she occupies? Because so many people, myself included, uh, when we first watched this, were in awe of the meticulous research and detail that went into this composer-conductor uh, world that she is at the top of the mountain of when the film starts. Uh, did you have an interest in that field of music? Uh, what was uh, you know your relationship with uh, that material? Well, my relationship was, you know... Um I think like many people, um, I, I certainly loved concert music and I listened to it a great deal um, for many, many years. But I didn't, you know, other than a sort of one time writing assignment I did many years ago for someone, I didn't, I hadn't been introduced properly uh, into the sort of the history and the mechanics of it, other than being a long time devotee of you know, the lectures of, of Leonard Bernstein and things like that. So there was much to learn, you know, and that's always the the really exciting thing, I think, for writers, you know, which is we get to we, we get to go back and, and take courses and things by necessity. So in this case, I knew 
she needed to know her stuff. I knew that she needed to know her stuff uh, in a very, very specific way that I didn't know, you know. Um, and so I was going to need to talk to someone um, uh, very, very smart. And at the beginning of the pandemic, right, boom, you know, middle March 2020, we're all locked down. Um, conductors can't conduct you know plumbers can't plumb we're all stuck where we are and um i was very fortunate in to that john mauchery um the conductor john mauchery the author john mauchery the um the educator john mauchery was um who had also been leonard bernstein's assistant for 19 years was willing to talk to me and was generous with his time for many many weeks on long long phone conversations and he really schooled me in in what that was and what you know what she would know and what and 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 the things that would be important to her so that was really the key once once i finished talking to john it was very a very simple piece of work i mean it was 12 weeks and i was finished with the script wow wow so writing is one aspect here they always say that editing is the final rewrite I've talked to people who have watched this film multiple times, and even on the third or fourth watch, they're still finding little hidden details in the background, or they're uncovering new layers. I think this film has a Kubrickian level of precision to how it is staged, how it is directed by you. Um, can you talk to me about that deliberate process, not just with writing and shooting, but then how then does editing reshape and reform what you previously had on the page? Well, it's the old saw, you know, which is a screenplay. The final draft is in the edit, and that's very true. You know, uh, other than scholars or film students, I don't think very many people go back and read screenplays. You know, there's a. I remember being a young person going back and reading like the unproduced screenplays of Ingmar Bergman or you know, or Fellini or people like that. Or, but I don't think many people do that. So a screenplay really isn't. It doesn't really count until until it's produced and edited. So things change quite a quite a deal, you know, quite quite a bit. And um, when I was when I was shooting this, I was working with a German crew, and um, sometimes they can be quite literal, um, and they like rules, you know, um, and they like they like to stick with certain plans. And so they would get very bothered with me or and Kate when we'd try to change something, and I would say. Uh, you know, the screenplay was written by Todd, not God. You know, this is not the gospel truth. Like we, we're allowed to change this. I, I'm the writer, you know. So uh, so things, you know, things change quite a bit. In the, in the edit with Monica Willey, you know, Monica Willey is, you know, one of the finest practitioners of her art. And she has won every major European award for good reason as, and has made some films that are part of our, our present and and uh canon you know i mean all of her work with with, with seidel her work with obviously with haneke um and uh and so she's very rigorous you know um and and she was a perfect perfect collaborator for for a film such as this really trying to get at what the thing was and what it wasn't and speaking of perfect collaborators your collaboration with Kate Blanchett on this. Uh, I've seen both of you on the award season trail uh, throughout the last couple of months. And it just seems like you two had a very 
special relationship in terms of actor to director and how the two of you uh, bounced off each other as artists trying to create this character, create this story, bring it to life. Can you tell me as a former actor uh, yourself, um, what is one thing that she did in this movie that just completely blew you away? Oh, where shall I begin? (laughs) I mean, Kate and I started working together in a fashion for nine months before we actually were in front of each other in Berlin, you know. Um, But nothing prepares you for what it's like to have Kate Blanchett walk onto a set. You know, um, she, you know, I've, I've told people this before, but it, it bears repeating. The film crews often, too often, when you yell cut, get very noisy. And what they don't realize is that between cut and the next action, that's when you're making a film. When you're really saying, okay, what did we just do? How do we adjust it? You know, how we should get busy. They, they, they're they so process-oriented that oftentimes, understandably, they believe that you're making the movie between action and cut, but you're really not. It's between cut and action that you make a film. But in this case, when Kate would do a take and you yell cut, very, very often, all of us would have our jaws on the ground and kind of be looking at each other in this sort of way where we were acknowledging, like, you you just saw that, right? You know, I saw that too. Aren't we lucky to have been here when this happened? You know, and that happened throughout production. That never, it was not like we ever got used to like, oh, wow, here comes, you know, this incredible um, human being that can do magical things. She would just continue, continually surprise us. Um, And that went all the way through into post-production, you know, very, very early on within a few days of Mona and I cutting that first scene with, with she and Adam Gopnik. We were no longer looking at Kate Blanchett. We were we were looking at Lydia Tarr, and, and, and we dealt with the the film as if it, we were cutting a, a film about a real human being named Lydia Tarr. And so that really was the guiding light in terms of going back to your earlier question in terms of the script, uh, the editorial process, which was how if we were documentarians and our watchword was fair. You know, we have to be fair. We can't be too kind or too cruel to this human being that we've made a documentary about. We must be fair. Fair enough, anyway, you know. And and that's really a testament to to Kate Blanchett's artistry. Yeah. So Lydia Tarr, as you mentioned before, many people, when they watch the movie, they sometimes don't realize that she's a fictitious character. Uh, she's so incredibly uh, realized by yourself and by Kate. Uh, that there have even been now, I, I just saw recently, uh, screenings where the audiences are encouraged to come to the screening dressed up as Lydia Tarr. <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of amazing to me how much this character has uh, resonated with people, and I'm sure that you probably feel incredibly proud of that. Uh, but when you look back on the experience of making Tar this award season run, and now whatever the next project is down the line, where does this whole experience just rank for you collectively in terms of your career? Well, I don't think I have much of a career, you know. I mean, I've made three films, uh, but in terms of my experience as a as a person striving to to do um, to express myself or do creative things in whatever manner, it, it was the most 
free I've ever felt in my entire life. It was the most um, incredible experience. I, you know, I mean, Matt, you know, the, I was, the studio basically allowed me to, to make the film I wanted to make. Um, yeah. And, and that uh, I'll, I'll always be just tremendously grateful for, you know, and it's one thing to be given that freedom is quite another to be able to have the opportunity to work with the group of artists, um, Kate and, you know, Blanchette first and foremost, um, and to, and to have an experience like that collectively with, with this kind of outcome. And I, I think that's a, a, a kind of a once in a lifetime thing. And it's certainly something that I'll never forget. Amazing. Well, the film is nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Actress, Cinematography, Editing. It's one of the most acclaimed films of the year. I could not wish you more congratulations than I possibly uh, would. <laughs> Todd, it, it's just been uh, incredible, and I'm just so thankful for you giving us uh, this movie. Um, last last question, super quick. Do you have a hat picked out for the Oscars? And if so, which one? Because your hats have become notorious along the award season trail this year. Yeah, well, I lost a bet, so I can't take them off. So, um, the uh, yes, I have a hat picked out, and in that that hat, all my hats are all made by one very specific gentleman uh, who is a storied haberdashery uh, uh, legacy uh, that goes back all the way to early Hollywood. So he he's a fine hat maker, and I'll call him out right now because. If you're looking for such a hat, I highly recommend you seek him out. And that's at Baron Hats. And that's in downtown Los Angeles. Amazing. Of Burbank Boulevard. <laughs> well, thank you so much once again. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and congratulations. Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate it. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. We have a problem. I received another weird email. There's no reason to get caught up in any intrigue. She's starting to disappear into herself. You want to dance the mask? You must service the composer. You gotta supplement yourself, your ego, and yes, your identity. You must, in fact, stand in front of the public and God and obliterate yourself. Welcome everyone to the next Best Picture podcast, where we are talking with Florian Hoffmeister, the cinematographer of the film Tar, nominated for some Academy Awards, winner of the Golden Frog Award for Cinematography. Florian, how are you? Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Daniel. I'm very well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's tired. I'm a bit tired. It's late where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm speaking from Iceland and I've, I've had a, um, a long shooting day. So I hope that some of my stuff that I say still makes sense. <laughs> well, hopefully. I mean, you know, we're we're going back into the memory banks a bit for from when you shot Tar. You did a lot of work before actually shooting the film with Ari on trying to replicate not just the look of an older camera lens, but on 
uh, something I read described as a digital film emulsion system that <laughs> sort of replicates the grain and color of celluloid in camera instead of in post-production. Yeah, Have you done that kind of work before? Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've always been uh, really interested in the the uh, you know the time that uh, let's refer to it as testing. You know, the time in pre-production when you start to get practical. I actually try to do that very very early, almost you know after the first two weeks, uh, just to open kind of a, a space you know in which you can meet with the director practically. Uh, you know, ideally, I shoot the first test even without uh, the director involved and it's a it's a good way to kind of create a, a you know an environment in which i can show you know how i've translated and transferred some of the um inspirations into my own world so that's always something that i really enjoy and do but it was it's something very it was it turned out uh, special on 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 the journey with todd for numerous reasons one is that he's a very he's a very uh very sensitive visuality you know he he really's got two beautiful eyes and and he's uh he sees very subtle differences and it was very clear from the start that um it was all about subtlety with ta you know so the 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 story about the lens actually comes across from it stems from the fact that he had to shoot some plates and some other stuff in new york and uh, by that time i wasn't physically able to join production so uh, and and we had talked on the phone and he had said, "Well, I'm gonna you know put in some glass for some lens tests as well." And then we set up a, a remote grading session. And um, by that time, I had returned to Berlin and I was watching it. And he was grading in New York and was just looking at all the stuff. And we so far we hadn't met and we had only spoken over the phone. And there was one particular shot that I thought, "Oh, this is really how I what I my my head when I read the script." And I pointed it out and he said, uh, yeah, that's, you know, one of his favorite lenses. It's an older size glass. And uh, and it was clear that, though, that we couldn't use that glass for the production because it's just, you know, too flaky, too old. So, we, but we had found something very early where, where both of us had connected over an image. Um, and then when we started the process of uh, testing, I also included all kinds of other glass that I personally loved. And uh, very early, he uh, when when we then screened it, he, uh, he he coined this phrase. He said, "Oh, some of this looks really beautiful, but it looks like a movie with a capital M," and that's not what we're going to do. So that kind of that his you know sense of authenticity and subtlety was reconfirmed in that. And then I kept on working my way slowly closer to the 
you know, to find something that not to replicate. That's a, it's more to like translate it into the world that we were living in. And we, we ended up with yeah. um, these uh, um, uh, Ari signature primes that we then hand tuned and found something that was defined and precise, but still had a sense of humanity to it. So it wasn't too clinical. And the other thing is the, the, the second part of it, which is the uh, print emulsion is, Obviously, this is not a new thing. You know, we all work with what we would refer to as LUTs. And um, we were doing, as we are shooting in Berlin, um, the um, the rushes were processed at uh, Ari Media. Um, and uh, I hadn't shot in Berlin for 15 years, but I knew the people that were running that uh, from years ago. Um, and I also knew that they had, Ari was at the forefront, obviously, of, of the um, development of... Um, uh, the Ari laser when the digital intermediate came along. So they spent lots of time trying to create these LUTs that would match a digital color grading environment with then printing it out on film. So there's this real big body of knowledge uh, and research that is, you know, sits there. And so we were shooting our first tests and I, I, the, the grader that we had that came in is a woman called Troudel Nicholson, who's uh, one of the last that stems from the generation of graders that has worked analog, has been in that entire development process, very active, the involved. So I said, and I knew she had this lookup table and I said, you know, Troudel, why don't you show Todd this, um, you know, what we then would refer to as the Ari print emulsion. And uh, Todd fell in love with it completely. And he immediately, you know, understood the, say, the tradition and the lineage that has gone in, in the development of this. So he coined the phrase print emulsion, you know, because I think what it stands for is not just something you cook up with a, with a grader in an afternoon. It's something that, you know, sits more solidly in the tradition of celluloid and in the transformation towards digital. So we then use that um, uh, lookup table or print emulsion um, to continue testing. And I think it fell really into a really lovely space where, you know, the subtlety and the authenticity still has a sense of uniqueness to it, you know, and you can't really tell what it really is. Yeah, it, it definitely has, the images have a quality to them that, feels very unique mm. to this film. And to that end, would you go through this kind of, th this feels like a, a larger, uh, more extensive testing process than, than one usually goes through. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> no I, or not I, so much. No, 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 no. Absolutely. No, I can, I can, I can, I could have gone forever. I can, <laughs> can really lose myself in that. But, it is. It was indeed a, a few things that came together very beautifully. One was we had a, a, a Ari Media has this beautiful viewing theater with a really large screen. We then, when we started uh, tuning the lenses, you know, um, Christoph Hofsten, who's the lens tech in Ari, they had done it on a smaller scale, but they never really executed it, you know, to the point where we would go back, we'd shoot another test, we would project the test. You know, then Todd would come, he would watch it, he'd give us notes, we go back and we, you know, test again. And so um, I think there's a, a, a few instances came together also in the sense that he 
with his uh, visual sensitivity was, you know, also he was demanding, but also uh, a great joy, you know, when you have somebody coming in who sees the most subtle differences and he says, let's keep on going, let's keep on going, you know, which of course you need, because if, at a certain point, if you've got uh, somebody who basically says, well, this is good for me, then, you know, which is his or her right, then you stop and Todd pushed us further down the line because the interesting thing about the tuning was that we didn't want or i was i didn't want to create like an uh, an optical layer between us as an audience and the film and to define that line where that starts where you start oh no i i see i see the lens i feel the lens you know then it you know it it really comes down to sensitivity and that was was the, the beautiful thing how subtle we could work but I would do it again if that's the question. <laughs> I'd go through it again. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I actually, yes, and more on an anecdotal level, you know that there's one thing I really don't. I, it's a big, big weakness. I never keep these tests. Ah. Uh, and which I should because it would be such great reference. But I'm really, really bad with that. And uh, it's almost you always start afresh from scratch. You know, like whenever I start something bigger, where I can really. Uh, um, create a look uh, I always start from from nothing and um, that makes it a bit cumbersome at times but anyway I imagine but it's also like your each project is different so you would probably look at different things for a test right absolutely and that's the fascinating thing is you know you I, the, the the stuff I'm currently shooting is couldn't be further away from tar you know and and but um you develop something in the process of the test as you let go of many of your, you know, your habits and your viewing patterns. So something that, you know, when I earlier that uh, I, I just come off this Apple series Pachinko before. Mm -hmm. I, so I, some of the stuff that I had really enjoyed on Pachinko, obviously in the first day of testing, you kind of bring that back, but you look with different eyes already because you've read a different script. You've set to a completely different director and you go like god that's horrible you know how could i've ever liked that <laughs> you know? so it's a bit it's a bit uh there's a a, a hands of uh, a sense of um how do you say schizophrenia is definitely present. <laughs> yeah you talked about todd field and he has very you know very strong sense visual sensibility and knows very much what he wants. You've also said, I, I read in an in interview you had done that he taught you a lesson about restraint being a cinematographer's ally. And I'm wondering if you could maybe expand upon that a little in terms of how you find which scenes call for a kind of restraint where the camera is just placed and that's it versus ones that don't where maybe you are following them uh and you know like to contrast you know the scene at juilliard with the scene the opening scene at the new yorker interview for example yeah i mean the 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 there's you know from already from the script stage it was actually it was very apparent that uh, you know there was uh, Todd had put uh, uh, you know poured all his knowledge about classical music into this you know, world that was foreign to me. So there was definitely a sense of authenticity from page one. 
And to me, I translated that in my world as an authenticity of space was really paramount. That was, you know, wherever we would have would go, it there would have like the a moment when you thought, oh, this is a film light, that would have killed the film. It should really feel as immersive and authentic as possible. But then obviously the script has these other levels of realities. And I think that was where taught and and what we you know the uh the form of restraint we then put ourselves under came in is that um to to allow the audience to discover these uh you have to remain in an in a certain form of objective observer if you start you could have easily with camera movement you know make a made a point to steer the audience into another direction you know say oh this is not about music this is actually about this and but this is was not how the script worked, and 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 not how the uh, you know how Todd had envisioned the film. So it was all about you know watching, being actually about being there and and, and bearing witness to stuff. And um, if you contrast those two scenes at the opening, ironically, you know, lots of lots has been written now about the Juliet scene as a scene with lots of movement. But sometimes people that have seen the film and they'd already known about this famous one-shot one uh, sequence, they said, oh, is that the beginning? So a sequence that we you know, deliberately shot different takes, they would feel it's like a one-shot because mm -hmm. the atmosphere of that, that sequence with uh, Adam Gopnik is just, should just feel like as if after two minutes in the cinema, you think like, am I actually yeah. in New York? Have I just entered the place to actually listen to? It's true. Adam and and, and um, so if we had, again, if we had added movement to those shots, we would have added a form of, you know, cinematic commentary. And it would have kept you from, from uh, um, uh, the, the, that feeling of, God, this is real, you know. And then, you know, contrasting this with the Juliet sequence where some people say, oh, we actually didn't realize that this was the one-shot sequence. Yeah. Um, there the idea was we wanted to break it down in the shots that we felt necessary for the sequence. So he had wide shots, mid shots, you know, we're closer to her, you were further away, you had to embody the, you know, the, the students uh, listening uh, we had to show, tell the story of the the student, you know, the conducting students that his knee is making her nervous. So there were all these sh shots that we felt were necessary, but uh, we wanted Kate to be the editorial force to kind of walk us through it so that she, uh, you know, that was the idea behind the one shot that she actually drives the editorial process. So, um, and I, that was actually one of the things that, Todd said from the start, I remember it still very vividly, it was our first week of scouting and he was, um, we were in that place for the first time and he said, I think there should be a one shot. And I completely jumped at that because, you know, it was clear that the first 10, 15 minutes of the film would be Adam Gopnik and uh, uh, Lydia and then Lydia and Elliot Kaplan, a benefactor. So it would be people seated and talking. And it would, was clear at this point that that would be very, you know, a very concentrated, focused cinematography. And then, you know, to actually unleash the camera and follow her um, through or, or have her push us through the conducting class. I thought that was a that was really beautiful.
Yeah, and and Kate is such an interesting person to follow for a scene like that, <laughs> and to and to follow in a lot of other scenes in this film. I mean, her face, the angularity of mm. her face—it's almost like a whole canvas unto mm. itself. You can really play with the lighting to make her mm. feel different from scene to scene. Mm. So I'm wondering, especially there is that shot that follows her from backstage at the concert at the end to on stage when she is preparing to take back her podium <laughs> at the, at this concert was that particular shot something that you thought about like we can get the lighting to emphasize all these different emotions that she's going on or did that happen to be like we're in this space and that's how the lighting is set up no, I mean the yeah, the, that's a good question. The conducting uh, the orchestra, um, the con- um, the oh, how do you call it? The concert hall. Sorry. Yes, the, the concert <laughs> hall pre- um, uh, had various challenges. So um, obviously, when we first saw it, you know, I thought, oh, we'll bring in, we we'll take everything out, we we'll just bring in our own rig. And well, you can't really do that in a concert hall, or at least in that concert <laughs> hall, because, <No. laughs> well, well, because they, they, had, they had these uh, paravons floating that had LED lighting included in them, but they did have a acoustic function. So they they were reflecting. So they had these structures hanging over the stage, and if you were to take them away, the musicians would not be That's able to to listen to themselves anymore. So um, that was one thing. So we couldn't take it away. Then the second thing was we had only four days to shoot this. Um, and on the fifth day, the the orchestra had a concert themselves. So whatever we did, it had to get out of there quickly. So we had these practical challenges. By that, you know, I, I took a camera and a lens and a stand and I went down there. And then I just shot <laughs> tests again where I felt because the light, you know, the space had to be real and authentic, but it was also a bit ugly and harsh. Uh, so I tested different gels and we finally found something and got little magnets that we could attach to the to the overhead sources. And then we kind of took the light away from the walls with like duvetines so or we just shaped it. So that was kind of the setup for the concert hall. And we had some a, a little frame that would float over Kate at times, but for the very moment when she actually raises out on that last concert, we let it actually go. I, I took away because that was the moment when she then jumps at the podium. It could be harsh and she should feel like she's losing it completely, you know. So basically, it was more about uh, sometimes taking even the little, taking the subtle things that we did away and let it really break. You know, that was one of those moments where we let it break. But it was a very complicated shot because we had to get the technocrate in there, which was difficult. And, you know, it's a it's a very quick move. It's one of those things that I really enjoyed about Ta. It's like it's in essence, it's exactly where the camera wants to be. And it's a very simple thought. OK, you travel back. But it was quite a technically complex <laughs> maneuver to actually. Pull yeah, you have out. to move it back through a whole orchestra. <laughs> and, you know, I, I want to say one thing, though, as well is. It's a, an extreme privilege to be working with, you know, somebody like Kate, because I mean, not is she not only is she a fantastic um, you know, actress and artist, she's also, you know, in her own way a filmmaker. She understands the process. She also cherishes the technicalities of it. And, you know, she's always had time to go again, you know, if something went wrong and and 
and the level of uh, emotional performance and the way she immersed herself was you know breathtaking oh yeah absolutely well and it's a breathtaking film and i believe we're out of time so thank you so much for <laughs> for talking with us about this film it, it's fascinating and i feel like we could talk for for hours or you know i have so many questions about like how finding the right lighting from the refrigerators you know in these dark night scenes where that's oh, the only source of light can, that was like <laughs> you can go on man you know my, my working day is over <laughs> no but uh, thank you i really appreciate your interest and your spirit man it's a it's a, a joy it's also it's an interesting thing we you know, when you do it, like today, for example, was a really exhausting shooting day. We, I just did 39 days of night in a row, like everything outside in sub-zero temperatures. And now we turned ourselves around and we're working the day again and everybody is exhausted. And you sometimes, you know, can't see the uh, the forest for the tree. So it also gives me joy when, when you know, to talk to somebody like you and you get something back from something that you have done. You know, it will invigorate my working day tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well good well i'm i'm very happy to have given that to you at any rate okay thank you for your work on this film good luck um just tell our listeners you know, like what what it is actually that you're shooting oh i'm so doing a, a new installment of true detective with uh, jody foster in it i know i'm looking forward to that a lot so. oh, I, <laughs> yeah. I did some testing <laughs> okay. Okay, all right man. florian Thanks hoffmeister thank you so much for joining us thanks daniel take care man bye-bye hey everyone thank you so much for listening to my interview with the writer and director for tar todd field and dan Bayer's interview with the cinematographer for the film Florian Hoffmeister. Both are nominated at this year's Academy Awards. Todd Field for Best Original Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture. And Florian Hoffmeister for Best Cinematography. Tar is nominated for six Academy Awards in total and is up for your consideration. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, 
And I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.